Well, welcome to QAV. This is episode 640. We're recording this on the 3rd of October, 2023. How are you, Tony? I'm well. Very good. That's good. If you see my wife walking around Sydney, say hello to her for me. She flew there today with her niece. They're doing Mm. a quick couple of days seeing the sights of Sydney. She said to me, just as she was going to the airport, well, what, what should we do in Sydney? I don't know what to do in Sydney. Go to the Opera House. That's about it. Nothing else to do in Sydney, really. A gallery of art, Sydney Art mm. Gallery. That's about it. That's all I know. Very good. Yeah. Well, get her to make her reach out and we'll catch up. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> why not? Oh, okay. I'll let her know. <laughs> she right. said I didn't even get a chance to talk to Tony about it when he was here the other day. I didn't even <laughs> get a chance to say hi. Anyway, with us today, sitting quietly in Sydney himself, a special guest today, all the way from uh, the country of Stockopedia, Chris Batchelor. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Cameron. Great to be with you here today. What do you what do you do at Stockopedia, Chris? What's your official title and job there? Oh well, I'm the jack of all trades. I'm the CEO when I want to be, and like. Clean the toilets when that needs to be done too. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I think well, the market's done that to us today, hasn't it's it? It's cleaned the toilet. Yeah. 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 I do a lot of investment analysis work and I also help out with the, the marketing and the support side of things. But, yeah, I'm like, my background is in investment analysis. Right. Oh, where at? Who with? I used to run a company called um, Scaffold, which is a stock market oh. research business. Oh, yes. Scaffold. <laughs> yeah. Let's now, talk about Scaffold. Let's talk about, <laughs> can you talk about Scaffold? We tried well, to buy Scaffold. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I actually tried to do that too at one stage, but it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be part of our QIV process until it went kaput. Well, yeah, under the okay. post-Scaffold name, which was Sharer... Advisor, share something. What was it called yeah, a few years ago? To, yes, share analysis or something like that. Share analysis, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so myself and Roger Montgomery founded that business and built it up and then we sold it. And then the new owner took it in a different direction, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Down. Down. <laughs> Got the company moving. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we actually, we reached out to Roger when it went off, when share analysis went off the air, we reached out to Roger to see if he knew who we could talk to about maybe buying the underlying, you know, code base or whatever. And he was like, nah, it's, and he said it was all very complicated and I don't know. So yeah, anything you want yeah, to contribute it, to that or is it just complicated? Oh uh, yeah, it got a bit messy. Yeah, it ended up in <laughs> administrators and so on. So yeah. Yeah. Which is a shame because it was another good tool for retail personal investors. Yeah, no, exactly. It was disappointing to see that happen, but we move on. Well, yeah, which is a new tool. Well, it's one of the reasons why I'm excited about having Stockopedia as another tool. Obviously, our audience knows that we use Stock Doctor mostly, but it was good when share analysis was around. When share analysis was around to have two data sources and you can compare the analysis from both and we could look at things like intrinsic valuation or, or consensus valuations and we could compare the two and get a bit of a heat map for how different businesses were viewing it. 
But we've only had the one data source for Australian stocks, really, that we've used since share analysis went away. But in using Stockopedia, our listeners know that I've been playing around with it for six months, and it has helped me pick up some flaws in stock doctors' data from time to time. And, you know, I end up in email sandwiches between Lincoln Indicators and yourself and Elio saying... (laughs) Your data's different, and both both people go. Oh, our data, we stand by our data. <laughs> so then I have to become Sherlock Holmes and build spreadsheets and try and work out who I agree with, which tends to yeah. be you guys. So, and to, to be fair though, it's I think it's usually a problem with the data feed provider. To oh yeah, yeah, to the intermediaries yeah. that we use, the tools that we use. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Stockopedia then, Chris, and we'll, you can tell us how you got involved with it and what it does and that kind of stuff. Where, where did Stockopedia come from? How long has it been around? Yeah, sure. So Stockopedia was founded in 2012 by a chap called Ed Croft and a few of his colleagues over in the UK. And they Ed originally started designing this product because he got really burnt during the GFC. And he thought there's got to be a better way. He was working in um, the city, as they called it, London at the time, and they were working in Goldman Sachs. And yeah, his folio didn't do so well during that time. So he set about studying all the academic research and really trying to come up with a solution to how to invest in stocks in a way that is safer and you know, more expedient. And he came up with this, it's not a new concept, but he put together this product around the concept of factor investing. And factor investing, I won't bore you to scores of the details, but it, it dates back to the early 90s when some academics did some analysis and discovered that there are certain factors that do drive returns in stock markets. You know, back when I was in uni, back in the early, early 90s, we were all taught that stock markets were efficient and the capital asset prices model was a model to, to follow and that you really couldn't outperform the market. And then ironically, the same chap that were pushing that, that particular theory, a, a guy called Faber, or two men, Faber and French, came up with a, a paper which said that actually we've done some further analysis and discovered that there are certain factors that do show a, a tendency to outperform markets over periods of time. So we built a model or a product around those factors. We're focusing on three, a quality factor, a value factor, and a medicine factor, and use those to rank all the stocks, not only in our stock market, but across global markets. Of course, it, it originated out of London, so that, you know, the focus has been the UK, but it's now a global product. And myself and Elio D'Amato got involved about 12 months ago. I've known Ed for five years or more, and I got in touch with him and said, you know, I know you'd like to make a push into Australia. Yeah, Elio and I are looking for a new gig. We'd be keen to get involved with it. And so, you know, we negotiated and, and that all came together. And so now Elio and I run the Australian side of the business, I manage all the Australian customers, the purpose of all that do analysis, write blog posts and so forth about Australian stocks as well as New Zealand. And, and of course, Leo's posting with the team in the UK who are the charge of all the development and that side of things. And of course... Many of our listeners will remember Elio from his days with Stock Doctor, and I think we had him on the show a few years ago after he left and was doing some other stuff. So yeah, 
both of you obviously with a long, uh, lot of experience in analysing the Australian market, which uh, I'm sure is of great value to Stockopedia. So what's the, what, yeah. what's the vision for Stockopedia in the Australian market, Chris? What, what do you guys hope to do? Yeah, we hope to be one of the major players in the stock market research space. You know, we, we believe this product really helps investors. Quite simple and intuitive in its approach, but it, it gives people, I don't like to use the term an edge, but it, it helps people who are time poor to analyze the market quickly, get themselves down to a short list of stocks that they can then dig into in more detail and come up with a portfolio that suits them. The other thing that it's really good at is it's not particularly oriented towards one investing style only. So, you know, I have my particular bent and others will have their particular bent when it comes to investing, but Stockopedia is fairly style agnostic. So, you know, short-term traders, long-term investors, value investors, momentum investors, whatever way you like to cut it, you can find value in Stockopedia and find it to be a very useful source of information. Yeah, I think one of the one of the great things in the last probably ten years or so is the ability for retail investors to be able to screen the market because of I guess improvements in the internet and IT, and that's that's a real bonus for you know people who aren't in the industry or running or working for fund managers etc. and have access to Bloomberg screens and that kind of stuff that was only available to stockbrokers in the past. And I guess my my kind of take on all of that is that. It doesn't really matter. It may not matter which tool you use, but it, if you use a tool properly, diligently, and with the right process, you should be able to beat the market fairly, fairly easily, fairly comfortably. And it just comes down then to, as you say, what what style do you prefer, and how disciplined are you at a, a applying that style and sticking to it? So, so knowing that, do you, do you guys measure with some kind of dummy portfolio the the returns that someone using Stockopedia would generate? And I know. It's it's across all different types of styles, but do you do you have like a CAGR return that we can benchmark you with? Uh, sort of, yeah. So we don't have a done portfolio per se, but what we do do is we backtest all of our stock ranks. So we calculate, as I mentioned, we have quality, value, and momentum as the key ranking metrics that we use, and then we calculate what we call the stock rank, which is basically just a composite of those three components. And then we use that across the market. We rank every stock from one to a hundred. And then what we do is we back test those different bands. So we break it down into deciles and we back test them across all the data that we have. So for the Australian market, for example, that goes back to 2016 and we can compare stocks that are ranked 90 to a hundred. We set up you know, a hypothetical portfolio. We rebalance that quarterly. And then we compare that to stocks that are ranked not to 10. Well, actually outperforms on a cumulative basis by about 150 percentage points. And it also outperforms your ordinary index. So, you know, we have those sorts of metrics. Now I have to caveat all of that. This is hypothetical. It's not an actual portfolio that you can replicate. There's no trading costs taken into account, for example. But what it does do is give you a good indication of the types of you know, the types of returns, the direction of returns that following the stock ranking methodology can lead to. Sorry, I just so I understand that 150 points above the index or 150 po points above what? No, so separating the top 
from the bottom group of stocks. Okay. And that, and are those, is the top group of stocks, the top group of quality value and momentum stocks, or is it the top of the quality, top of the value and top of the momentum looked at separately? No, it's the top of the composite of those. The yes, composite. So, okay. Yes, that's right. Okay. And, and how does that top decile perform over time from a CAGA point of view or a, a market outperformance point of view? Uh, give me a second. Like, like up here. I guess while it, you're doing that too. How's it, <laughs> how's it doing today? <laughs> so, so, yeah. So I can tell you over the last eight years that it's done a cumulative return of 73%. So that's, that's not per annum, that's opposite. That's cumulative. Mm-hmm. Um, if you wanted to look, just say at the last year, it's, it's basically, right, basically zero. So it has underperformed over the last year. The last year being trailing the last 12 months or? Last 12 the... months, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. All right. And can I also then say why quality value and momentum and, and can you do other ones like growth, for example, or other asset classes? And yeah, so we've chosen those three because we found that they had the biggest impact on stock returns. So in theory, we could have done others growth. There are various growth metrics in the system and very early versions of the system did have a growth component, but it was decided by the team when you came when years ago, but they decided just to bring it back to those three, keep it simple, and, and because they were the ones having the greatest impact. There was a fair overlap between, I think, particularly the quality rankings and your growth rankings. Really? That's interesting, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. yeah, good. Good. And so you kind of got to those three through experience. Is it based on research or is it just based on the experience of the developers? Uh, most of it is research. So there's a lot of academic studies that have gone into it. And most of those are actually accessible through the program. There's a sort of what the learn section. So you can dig into that detail if that's of interest for the viewers to assess. And then of course there there has been the, the testing of the actual models, both what you can see in the system as well as back testing with data when the system is being developed. And and the back testing supports the fact that you're better off having a portfolio of the top in each of those categories rather than just say the top quality stocks or the top value stocks, for example. Yeah, we don't push a particular angle there. I mean, overall, the overall stock rank gives you the best exposure to all three different factors. And the advantage of that is that different factors will outperform at different times. So, you know, at certain periods of time, that value will be doing really well. And then it won't do so well for a while, but momentum will do really well. And so by spreading yourself, or by taking that composite, you're getting exposure to all three of those factor drivers. What are you using for momentum? Is it like a, a long-term over a short-term type cross? Is that the idea? There's two elements to the momentum score. One is based on share price and it's looking at primarily, well, it's looking at the relative strength of the share price versus, you know, the, the market. And it's looking at it particularly in the six to 12 month period. And, and then also 
we look at analyst earnings. So there's a earnings component. So if analysts are revising their earnings up, then that's positive for the momentum score. So there's those two components that are taken into account. And it's a number of metrics underlying each of those, but that's the two broad groups that drive that momentum score. So it's not purely a share price for you to. Right. Okay. And re relative strength, is that the same as the relative strength index that we often hear talked about? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. And I guess that's one component of putting a portfolio together. Does Stockopedia or yourselves recommend things like the size of the portfolio, whether you buy and hold or rebalance or trade? What What are the sort of recommendations along the trading elements of putting a portfolio together? Yeah, Stockopedia per se does not get a recommendation on that. I do have a personal view. <laughs> Which is? Which is, I, I think a portfolio of around 15 to 20 stocks gives a good diversification without making it overly complicated. And it, it, most, a, a number of studies have shown that you get biggest bang for your buck in terms of diversification benefits around that 20 stock. Right. After that, it starts to taper off a bit. So that's certainly, certainly my own investing. I have about 20 stocks in my portfolio. And then it, to your other question about, you know, strategies. It, trading versus buy gold, etc. As I mentioned at the top, the product itself is style agnostic. So it is used by people that like to trade on a frequent basis and they tend to focus on momentum. Um, whereas those who tend to uh, like to buy and hold for a long, longer term, and that's more me, I'll tend to be more focused on quality and value factors. Uh, personally, the way I tend to invest is I look for stocks that I think have a lot of long-term potential, that are high-quality businesses, but also trading at a reasonable valuation. And then I ideally hold them for long periods of time. A lot of the stocks in my portfolio are at those seven, eight, nine years now. So provided my theory proves correct and that I've picked the right stocks, then what I do do is I rebalance. So if, if the stock goes well, then it starts to become a highly weighted within my portfolio. I trim that back to a, you know, a target weighting. Likewise, if a stock falls and provided it still meets all the valuation criteria and the fundamentals of the business are still solid, then I'll add to that stock and build up my weighting on that stock. I generally hold for, as I said, years, but of course the, the thing that will trigger me to change that is if I discover that the business has changed, either I've made a mistake or the business itself decides to take a slightly different direction or a very different direction. You know, if the assumptions around revenue and earnings, if they've proved to not be playing out or around the balance sheet structure or the cash flow, you know, if that changes significantly or even just the ongoing strategy of the business, generally we, we have an understanding that, you know, there's a particular strategy this business follows. If they change that dramatically, then I'll look to sell the fundamentals of why I bought that business no longer stand. So does that mean that you need to set alerts or follow a business that you own carefully to look for those kinds of triggers for sellers or, or you're pretty hands-off? Yeah, I'm not that hands-on. I mean, I do watch it daily. <laughs> and do I set alerts? I set price alerts for yeah, they've got automation to trimming sort of thing. So I'll, you know, most stocks in my portfolio, I'm generally looking to, if one gets 20% overweight relative to my target, then I'll look to trim. 
So I set alert, the price alerts for those. Uh, Stockopedia does allow you to set alerts on any number of different metrics. I use that a little bit, but I don't do that a lot, mainly because I'm very close to my portfolio, I guess, because it's my job. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at this stuff every day and yeah, I'm keeping a close eye. So what kind of, what kind of period do you normally rebalance? Is it an annual thing or a shorter or longer time frame? No, it's not based around a time fact for me. It's based around those share price movements. So I will rebalance whenever a stock gets out of whack in terms of the percentage of my portfolio. So that could be, you know, at any point in time. And what about rebalancing due to changes in the scores? How often do the scores change enough to drop something or bump something up the decile ladder, so to speak? Is it is it after new numbers come out in the reporting season or is it changing all the time? Yeah, so it depends on the factor. So for the quality score, the well, pretty much just comes down to when new numbers are released, so half yearly for Australian stock. The momentum factor changes on a daily basis, as you would imagine. Um, and then value, it, it can change on a daily basis. It tends to be more steady, but value, of course, is related to price. And so if price moves considerably, then the value metrics will change as well. Uh, it can also change due to changes in analyst forecasts and so on. But as I said, that tends to be more gradual um, unless there's some sort of announcement which drastically alters uh, the perception of a business. Hmm. So do you have any other sell triggers outside of rebalancing? If, if some bad news came out or the CFO resigned or something like that, would you sell a stock and, and what are those rules? Yeah, well, I do look at valuation metrics um, and I certainly consider selling when valuation metrics get high. But in my case, that's more likely to be if it's somewhat extreme. I don't, I generally just trim when, that, when valuations get high rather than sell right out. But there have been occasions when I have sold completely because I just thought this is valued ridiculously well and I might as well take advantage of that and get out. And then the third situation is, yeah, I mentioned I generally keep to around 20 stocks. Well, if I find something that's a really compelling buying opportunity, but I don't have any spare funds available, well, I've got to look to sell something. So I'll go through my portfolio and say, well, which is the least attractive of these existing holdings? And that one will get sacrificed to bring in the dealer. Least attractive being the lowest score in Stockopedia, or is there some other way of doing it? That, that's, yeah, that's certainly a factor, but then I'll also look at some of the other metrics that I like to focus on. I, I like to look at the balance sheet. So, you know, if a company's debt profile has gotten worse, then that's obviously a, a negative perspective. Uh, I, I look at cash flow. I think cash flow is a very important metric to keep close eye on. Bear in mind that it's, it's volatile and variable, but nevertheless, at a time, cash flow should be strong for a business to be strong. And then I will also look, of course, at revenue and earnings and the projections for those and how the business is tracking relative to what is projected past. So all of that factors into the, the stock ranks, but I'll also pull them out separately and those factors myself. But people use Stockopedia in different ways. Some people just want to keep it pretty simple and, and focus on the stock ranks, but others, you know, like myself, who have been in this game for quite a while like to dig into the detail and 
and the actual underlying illness as well as the stock rates. And the two should correlate, but it's, it's also helpful just to look at the underlying metrics. Yeah, and, and are you agnostic when it comes to the size of the company or do you tend to stick to a certain market cap size or average daily trading value size? Yeah, pretty much agnostic. I know if you look at my portfolio, it's definitely skewed towards the small caps. I tend to find there's more opportunities in that space and that just tends to be the space where I play the most. I do have some larger stocks, but for the most part, I'm focused on the small caps. Stockopedia itself is, is large and neutral. We do find particularly the value metric that sometimes you get more opportunities in the smaller end of the market, mainly because the big the institutional investors, they have difficulty playing in that space. And so sometimes that skews the, the valuation a bit and throws up opportunity for smaller, more nimble investors who are able to get into those stocks, you know, without disturbing the, the share price. Obviously, when you get down to the really small stocks, you've got to watch liquidity. And it's not only related to market cap, it's also related to how widely held the stock is and whether it will work to add up one or two individuals. Uh, but generally, if you're patient, then you're not looking to invest too much money. You can get a decent position in, in most stocks. It may take a few days to, to get into that you know, without upsetting the market. But generally, yeah, I've, I've got some really tiny stocks, got a couple of large ones, and then most of them are probably in that one to 200 million up to 2 billion sort of okay so with the ranking process you you get the 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 market ranked on those three metrics from top to bottom have you do you or have you heard of anyone using the bottom of ranking uh, stocks to short the market at all yes yes i don't but yeah people do do that and we actually have six pre-built short selling screens within Stockopedia. So people can just uh, click onto those screens and see at a glance what stocks are the most attractive in the short selling perspective, which means they're probably the most unattractive. And that will focus largely on the low scoring stocks, but it also takes other indicators into account. Yes, they're based around what we call guru screens. So they're based around particular short sellers strategy for short selling and it, it might be that they focus on three particular metrics and so you know we'll analyze those metrics and look for the ones that meet those criteria but of course there tends to be a very strong correlation with those and low ranking stocks and do you have guru screens then for the other end for for buying stocks absolutely yeah so most of our guru screens you know we have value we have momentum uh, we have quality, we have growth, uh, oh, and income, of course, and we have some income screens as well. Now, oh, we could add a, Q a QAV guru screen to stock a <laughs> Certainly, not have a question. Good stuff. Do you adopt any macro screens or macro views or positions in Stockopedia? Yeah, no, Stockopedia doesn't take a macro view per se. However, the one qualifier I would add to that is that we do use consensus analyst forecasts. And of course, when analysts are generating those forecasts, they're considering the macro factors and they're deriving their numbers. But you know, Socopedia is a very company-focused tool rather than focusing on metrics, macro metrics. 
And personally, I, I invest that way as well. I, I tend to look at the company. I'm of the view that ideally you want companies that are going to prosper irrespective of the economic circumstances. Now, of course, that doesn't mean they're going to be immune to it. Most companies will be impacted in some way by rising inflation or slowing economic growth. But good companies will have the strength to ride through those periods of time. And they may even emerge out the other side in a stronger position because they're their competitors may have not suffered more than they did. So that's what so, they're looking for. Yeah. Do I take it from that then that you stay fully invested the whole time? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Okay. And what about stock weightings in your portfolio? Is it, is it 15 to 20 equal weightings that you start off with, or do you favor the highest scoring stocks with a, a larger part of the portfolio? Yeah. What I do personally, I break my portfolio into two segments. I call them bottom drawer and top drawer stocks. The bottom drawer are the ones that I held for Meetings that I'm really comfortable with, basically ones that don't cause me stress, and I give those a higher weighting. So I, within that group, they're equally weighted, but that group gets a higher weighting. And then the top draw stocks are the ones that I'm keeping a close eye on because you know they're great right now, but I'm not 100% confident that they're going to be great for a long period of time. And and so as a group, that gets a smaller weighting, which means that each individual stock whilst equally weighted, has a smaller weighting than where bottom draw stocks. So, yeah, there's a skew there. <laughs> okay. You know, what's, what's a good example of a, a stock that's in each of those two drawers? Sure. So, um, Nick Scarly or Coden, they're stocks mm-hmm. that I've owned a long time, and I've trimmed at times, I've added to them at times. So, Coden, I was buying it when it got down to $4.00. Last year, um, I was selling it when it was at $19, but I've always held a core hold. Well, not always, but for a long time, I've had a little core hold in that. Um, top draw stocks, so I've got some little sort of minnow stocks. I've got Magellan, for example. That's not a minnow, but it's, it's one that keeps me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> worry about what should happen there. It looks attractive, provided they can turn it around, but that's a big provided. And then some of the smallest sort of tech stocks, I have dabbled in a couple of those. So I, I have very few stocks that have no earnings or you know, don't have positive earnings, but I do have a small head in tech stocks. Your point about the bottom draw stocks, something that I've noticed from investing over the years is that some stocks just keep appearing on the, well, we call it quality value uh, score sheet. I imagine it's the same thing for Stockopedia. Why do you think that is? I mean, you mentioned Nick Scarly before. It's been on and off my buy list now for probably 10 years. Why do value stocks stay value stocks? And, and you know, the, the theory is that they're meant to grow up and become blue chips. So it doesn't seem to always happen that way. Do you have any insight into that or thoughts? Yeah, my, my thoughts are that I'm mean, using it as an example. It's a very well-run business. Now, furniture's not going to shoot the lights out. It's not like AI or something, but it's something that we all need and we're going to continue to need forever in a day. And of course, there's quite a few businesses in that space, but Nick Scully, which is just a very well-run business, they acquired Flush and they've really transformed that business and you know, generating really strong margins from that business. So whilst they're, you know, they're not a blue chip stock, they, they have grown quite a lot over the last 10 years or so. 
mm. and they churn out the beans. So mm. you just sit there collecting it to do it pretty nicely. And it's just one of those ones where you're pretty confident that Anthony Scarley is just going to, he's highly invested in himself. So it's in his interest to make sure that the business is run well. And he does that and you pretty much sit back and let him manage your money. And as I said, when the market sells down because of some external event, that's when you can pick up more at a good valuation. And then, you know, was it 12, 18 months ago, they got quite high. So I thought they think they got up to $14, $15. And yeah, I took that opportunity to trim a bit. But overall, I think it's just a very steady business paying a great dividend. Mm. Just a nice number there. Yeah, I think it's a great business, but it's just always surprising me the trades on an IPE when, as you've outlined eloquently, what all the good things are about it, and yet the instos haven't really jumped onto the, the register in a big way. Yeah, and it's interesting that they will often cite things like, oh, we're looking at a property to buy their you know, sales and leverage to the property market. And that's true. But that'll really be is. a. <laughs> it, it'll Pretty be much. A, with, yeah. Except resources, no, they are too. Well, yeah, that's right. And what will happen is, yeah, sales might decline a bit, but that's just a little blip. Well, they'll, they'll come back. And you can look it through their history, like the GFC, the, the share price tanks. Mm. And yeah, they already sell a bit too. But they bounce back. And if you seize them at that time, you would have done. Yeah, I think that's my answer to the question is that you, the GFC saw a lot of those businesses which are always on the value list decline dramatically, credit call. Nick Scarley come to mind straight away. But as you say, if you take that 12 months out of the stock market graph over the long term, they've been terrific investments, which means that that 12 months was a great buying opportunity, not a selling opportunity. Yeah, that's right. And it was the same during the panic of 2020 at the start. Mm-hmm. With, with COVID, the cash yeah. and, the, and the courage, there were some great opportunities there. Yeah. Anyway, interesting to, aside from someone who's like you, been in the market for a long time looking at these stocks. And I guess research, from what I've seen of Stockopedia, plays a big part in the development of the product. Can you outline some of the, I guess, more salient pieces of research that have gone into it? I know you spoke before about Eugene Fama, but there are some other ones too. Yeah, sure. So, there's a, well, I'm not a big expert on momentum. You've probably picked that up by now. It's not my style, but there's have been studies done on momentum. And also a lot of practitioners of momentum, guys like Richard Tryhouse. Um, the name of the guy who did the big study is just escaping me right now, but there was a study done in the early nineties that really identified momentum as a key factor. Then, yeah, they're, they're probably the two ones that the family and French paper called the cross section of expected market returns in 1992, that that's a real driver behind all of this. And then there's um, specific um, papers around different elements of it, be it quality, be it value. Yeah, I know. Listening to Ed Croft in the past speak, he's a big fan of the Zulu principle. So that was another one that Great. people might want to look up. Yeah, that's right. And there was another one too, whose name escapes me, which um, caught my eye. Some research was suggested that it was very hard to find the perfect stock because finding the stock which was great at quality and value or momentum might be impossible, but you can get the same sort of characteristics if you spread that over 10 stocks, which I yes. thought was an interesting concept as well. 
Yeah, so I remember one like you, I can't think of the exact name, but I have read that word too. Uh, one guy who does do a lot of research in the space is a guy called Rob Unlet. He's a hedge fund manager in the US, but he's um, probably the most famous of the factor investing hedge funds who you know, really popularized this strategy back in the 90s and still to today he's running that site. It's, it's all on my phone and he's done very well. Ooh, very good. I, I guess, you know, before you go, do you have any sort of war stories from your time running Scaffold or with Roger Montgomery or being around the markets for a long time that sort of you can share with our listeners that, uh, that might be helpful? No, the war stories. <laughs> I mean, what did you been... do during COVID? Yeah, COVID was an interesting time. I I I did buy. I didn't have enough cash because I hadn't sold for I did I trimmed a couple of things just at that that around February. You know, in February twenty twenty. I thought I remember trimming Magellan when it was up around seventy dollars, but again didn't sell out. And so I had some cash and so I did buy a number of my favorite stocks during that period of time of course what was interesting in that time was it was the big unknown yeah it's all very well to say oh yeah you look at the graph now and it dropped and it came straight back but at that time it was the first time in living memory that businesses actually shut down mm. and and no one knew how long they were shutting down for so i looked at my stocks and said can these companies survive six months with next to no revenue and nick scully was one that you look at it and you say, well, they've got very little debt. They'll obviously cut their expenses right back. And yeah, sure, their revenue will be go to, to almost zero. But yes, I can see they would survive. ARB was another one. Yeah, they'll survive. Um, the ones that were highly leveraged, I mean, Virgin was a classic, you know, they're toast in a situation like that. Because once, once the cash flow dries up and they can't service their debts, they're in trouble. Yeah. So yeah, I, I did an analysis of all my stocks and said, how would they go if this goes on for six months and there's, there's no revenue coming through the door. And I was comfortable that they would survive. I knew they'd take a whack, but, but they would survive. And as we know, they were, you know, all my stocks survived. <laughs> Most companies did survive, but there were some that, that really struggled. And a lot had to raise capital. So whilst they survived, Raising capital at, at really low prices, you can argue is actually going broken. <laughs> because if you're having to do that, you're diluting your shareholders. And yeah. if you're not, if, if you can't survive without that capital, then you're effectively in a dire situation. Yeah. And we're seeing that with Stark Entertainment Group at the moment too, with their capital raisings recently. Correct. Yeah. And we've got a webinar coming up in a week or so where we're going to talk about avoiding disasters. I mean, that's one of the examples that we will highlight because Stockopedia, you know, did give plenty of warning signals about that. Yeah, right. Good. Cam, over to you. Do you have any questions to add? Just some, I guess, questions about the product itself, Chris. I guess the first one everyone listening to this is going to be asking is, What's the unique value proposition vis-a-vis Stock Doctor? Most of our members listening to this are already Stock Doctor members. Some new members may not be, though, yet. Uh, if people already have Stock Doctor, do you see Stockopedia as a, a secondary tool, like a complementary tool, or is it an either-or situation? Yeah, 
I would think it's complimentary. So Slokopedia doesn't attempt to usurp any particular process. So I'm no expert on Stop Doctor, but I gather they focus on the, the sort of the health of companies and their, their style of stocks. You can then use Stockopedia to analyze those stocks and get a different perspective. Obviously, it's the same underlying data, but you know, you'll see how is that stock ranking in terms of its quality, in terms of its value, in terms of momentum. I would imagine this, this, like the stocks they recommend that would be more quality and value stocks, but as a said, I'm no expert on their system. So the, the, the real thing we bring is this whole factor investing concept and, and the stock ranks, which make it quite simple for people to see at a glance what is the driving factors behind the returns of a particular stock. And, and then you know, okay, this stock is really more strongly in terms of momentum. I'm not really a momentum investor. That's not my area. So I, that's not one that I'm going to be looking at. I'm going to focus on these ones over here, which are policy or not great value stocks. Okay, so complementary. One of my only bugbears so far with using Stockopedia are the download limits. You, have, you can only download 200 stocks at a time. When I'm doing an Australian download, okay, that just means I have to do like four or five downloads to get the full list of stocks that I want to look at. But as our listeners know, I've been using it to try and build a, a US version of our checklist, in which case I have to download about 20 pages of stocks to get through the full 3,000 that I want to filter. Uh, any explanation for why the limits and uh, any chance that they're going to get removed? Um, what, what do we have yeah. to do? Who do we have to complain to about that, Chris? Do we I have think to go up the food to... chain to the UK? Well, I think you'd actually have to go higher than that. that that's because it's, it's due to the data provider. That's a refinitive restriction. We're good friends with Refinitiv. We reach out yeah. to them and have a crack at them. Yeah, okay. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, and the reason they have that is it's meant to be, you know, they're selling a data subscription to Stockopedia based on this being a retail product. And if if it starts to look more like an institutional-grade product, then they want to charge institutional prices. So that's, that's why there's that restriction. Fair enough. Final question, the reporting, the portfolio, portfolio reporting, I think it's time-weighted return you guys use. We prefer to have a CAGA report. Is there any way of getting a straight-up CAGA report, or is that uh, beyond your yeah. tool set at the moment? Yeah, it is beyond the tool set at the moment. I mean, what we can do is put through a request to the development team. But yeah, I'm not sure where that would rank in terms of the priorities. Obviously, they've got a large wish list of people requesting different <laughs> things. But yeah. Tell them Tony asked. Tony Kyniston. Yeah. I'm sure they know who Tony is. T you said yeah. TK says. Yeah. See, see how that goes. All right. Yeah. And I, I believe you've got an Oprah deal for our listeners today, Chris. Yeah, that's right. So it gets a car. Yeah, well not quite. But everyone can have ten percent off if they if they choose to uh, subscribe. What we've done, we've set up a webpage y.stockopedia.com forward slash UAV. And if you go along to that, you'll, you'll be offered a 10% discount on any one of our plans. So 
Yeah, we'll start with Australia only is our cheapest plan, but you can go right through to the whole global package or Australia and US, for example, is $720 per annum, uh, which is very competitive compared to some of the alternatives that are out there. And that's Y as in W-H-Y dot Stockopedia, not the Correct. letter Y, just in case people are wondering. Well, thank you. That's very generous of you. And, you know, it is... I know that uh, some of our members are interested in international markets, not just Australia. Mm. Up until this point, we've only focused on the Australian market, but I know we've got listeners in the UK and the USA that have been asking us to help them build checklists. So that's one of the things I'm excited about, Stockopedia uh, being an option for us as we can use that for these international audiences. So go check it out, Stockopedia dot com slash qav thanks very much for coming on and having a chat chris and thanks for the the deal for our members and good luck with the building of the stockopedia empire in the australian region for you and elio i hope it does very well thanks cameron thanks tony it was really great to chat with you guys today yeah thanks chris thanks for your time mate and that's the end of the free episode of qav for this week if you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc. Uh, sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you uh, like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to uh, you know, learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Um, check that out too. Um, it's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But, uh, you know, while he's not, <laughs> we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. Um, that's it. Um, if you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episodes. And if you have any questions, uh, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing.